today we begin this journey through Holy Week or Passion Week. And I'm really excited because I get to talk about, preach on, and think about my favorite topic in the whole world. That's Jesus. So I talk about this all day, every day, throughout the whole year, and never get tired of it. The other reason why I also really enjoy this time of the year is because this is a time when I have some really, really good conversations with folks who are not Christian, who've been on this journey of researching, looking into what Christianity is. And more than any other time, we get to focus in on the essence of what makes Christianity. And here's the deal. The essence of Christianity is Jesus. Essence of Christianity, heart of what Christianity is about is Jesus. And so that means a couple things. Number one, if we have wrong perspective of Jesus, wrong perspective of Christianity. And so there's a couple of things I want to say as we kind of launch into the next uh, uh, three, I guess, sermons today and then Good Friday and Easter Sunday. First of all, we say around here that my opinions or anybody else's opinions regarding Jesus doesn't amount to much. Doesn't matter what I think about Jesus. Doesn't matter what I say about Jesus. What really matters is that we go deep into the heart of Scripture. We lay aside our opinions. We lay aside what we grew up with. We lay aside presuppositions. We even lay aside, you guys, what we're afraid to think and know about Jesus. Lay them aside. And to get to the heart of Jesus, we go to the Scriptures and find out who is he? What did he say? So that's one thing. We look really hard at what Scripture has to say about Jesus. So second, second thing is this. Second thing is that when we do that, we realize that most of us just don't understand it when it comes to Jesus. Because most of us and most people that are sitting in church, when it comes to Jesus, we are what I call in the spiritual middle. We admire Jesus. We like Jesus. We think he was a good guy. The problem is Jesus never drew that reaction from those who met him. Jesus never drew the reaction that we draw today. People look at Jesus, they go, he was a nice teacher, he was a nice prophet, he said some good things. And so we like him, we admire him, we think he was a good guy. And even for those of us Christians, boy, our perspective on Jesus, along those lines. But the problem is when we go to scripture and look really, really hard, strip away our opinions, our ideology, or what we think about Jesus, when we look at what Jesus said, look at what Jesus did, look at what Jesus was, and we realize that a mild, favorable reaction towards Jesus was nonsense. Okay. Since, since you guys want, okay, give me an expert who knows this stuff. Okay. I, I, let me quote Bono. Okay. Uh, he was interviewed by Rolling Stones a few years back, okay? And so the interviewer says to Bano, he asked him this question. Jesus Christ has value and is ranked among the greatest thinkers of the world. But Bono, son of God, come on, don't you think that's far-fetched? To which this is what Bono said. Actually, it's not. The secular response to the Christian story goes something like this. He's a great prophet. He had a lot of good things to say along the lines of other prophets. But Jesus does not allow you to say that. Jesus says, no, don't call me a teacher or a prophet. I'm saying I am God incarnate. So we're left with this. Either Christ is who he says he is, or he's a complete nutcase on par with Charles Manson. Now, I'm not joking here. The idea that one half of the human race has had its history completely changed by a nutcase? That, for me, is far-fetched. 
So listen, okay? Your response to Jesus and my response to Jesus as we sit here today, nice guy, Lord, Savior. I sing these songs. We have this mild, favorable response to Jesus. There's no intellectual integrity there. Jesus never drew that response from people who met him and encountered him. As C.S. Lewis says, either Jesus was a liar, because he knew he wasn't God, but he claimed to be, so you hate him, or he was loco. He was crazy, and so you fear him, or he is who he said he was, which is the son of God. At which point, the only appropriate response is that we fall down and we worship him. If you're not a, not, if you're not a Christian today and, and you say, you know what, I, I, I have problems with the church, but I like Jesus, I have problems with the church, can I just press back on that a little bit? I'm not going to defend the church because, you know, not even our church. Church is ugly. Church has issues, so on and so forth, even though it's a bride of Christ. But please, don't so flippantly say you admire and like Jesus. Have you really listened to what he said? Have you listened to what he said? Really? Because if you listen to what he said, I don't think you would think he was a good teacher, prophet, a nice guy. Your response will be either he was crazy Praise God. So what is your response to Jesus this morning? What is your response to Jesus this morning? Well, we're going to go ahead and look at a text uh, in Scripture. Open your Bibles to John 18. And we're going to look at a classic encounter example of uh, how people responded when they encountered Jesus, okay? How y'all doing this morning? Everybody doing okay? Yeah? Okay. All right. That's kind of a strong intro. It's kind of a strong medicine there intro, you know, but we're going we're gonna to get harder, actually. Okay, so John 18, here we go. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because he had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. Now, here's the thing. How many of y'all have your Greek Bibles? Anybody have their Greek Bibles? Come on, seminary nerds. I know there's like two people out there who have Greek Bibles. No, not today? Okay, Nathan, you didn't bring one? Andrew Vanover, is he in here? He didn't bring one? Okay. In the Greek, in, in the Greek, in the Greek, it literally says, I am. There's no he. In the Greek, it literally says, I am. That's exactly what Jesus says when he steps in front of the Roman soldiers. I am. And if you've come to church, Archers, long enough, you know where I'm going with this, right? Because Jesus often liked to describe himself and introduce himself as, I am. John chapter 8 is another example. Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they're doubting his ability to do what he's doing. They're doubting essentially his identity. And Jesus steps in front of them. He says, before Abraham was, I am. It doesn't say I was, which would have been pretty phenomenal in and of itself. Before Abraham was, the guy that you know that lived hundreds of years before, before he was, I was. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was, I, I am. And any Jew of that time would have heard Jesus and didn't think, you are what? 
But their minds would have immediately flashed to where? Exodus chapter 3. Where the divine name of God is revealed. Do you remember that little story? Burning bush. Take your shoes off. Moses, come near. Come a little closer. And this is what happens. It's up on the screen. Exodus 3 verse uh, 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? But God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. God says that we should be talking about this name for generation to generation, which makes me wonder why we don't refer to him by that name much anymore. The Hebrew word, by the way, is chaya. If you're not spitting at your neighbor, you're not saying it right. <laughs> Say it with me. Ready? Chaya. <laughs> okay, now you look at each other and say, ready? Here we go. I'm just kidding. I'm just, don't do that. Don't do that, okay? The Hebrew name is Chaya, and God understands Hebrew, so you could call him that, okay? Chaya. What is Chaya? Well, in English, it's the word I am. English majors here, what is I am in English grammar? Anybody know? It's the present active tense of the verb to be. So God is literally saying, my name is I am from the verb to be or just be actually. So call me be. When's the last time you prayed that? Dear heavenly be. It's perfectly biblical. God says, call me I am. Chaya. And here's the thing. When God uses the verb to be or I am without an object, he's saying quite a lot. Because you and I don't say I am and just stop. We say I am this or I am that. Or we say I am because. And God says, I don't do that. I just say I am. I have no beginning. I have no ending. I don't say I am because, because my being doesn't depend on anyone or anything. I just am. When were you born? I am. When will you come to an end? I am. Beginningless, endless creator God. I never get tired. I never get worn out. I never run out of gas. I never sleep. I am. That's my name. Now, some of y'all need to go to your small groups and start praying that. But before you pray that, you warn people, I'm going to pray a little different tonight, okay? Just want you to know, his name is I am. Dear Heavenly, I am. Thank you for being B. I am. Now, think about this for a moment. When Jesus declared himself as the I am, it's easy for us 2,000 years later to miss the significance and the weight of what he's saying. Because you need to understand that that's what got him killed. Jesus is saying something here that no other founder of any major religion has ever said. Matter of fact, listen carefully. He's saying the exact opposite of what other major founder religions have said. Because all the other founders of other major religions have said, this is the way. This is the truth. Let me show you to the truth. This is the way to live. Every other founder of religions. Jesus Christ comes along and says what? I am the way. Do you hear what I said? 
He's saying exact opposite of what all the other major founders of religions ever said. They said, this is the way. Jesus has the audacity to say, I am the way. This is the way to life. Jesus comes along and says, I am the life. Jesus, all the other founders of religions say, this is the way to truth. This is how you discover truth. Jesus comes along and says, I am truth. So if you're thinking about, how do I dialogue with this, my non-Christian friends? That's exactly how you dialogue with your non-Christian friends. So you can say to them, he never claimed to be a prophet. Mm-mm. It's like the exact opposite. Never claimed to be a teacher. Jesus Christ had the audacity to say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I haven't come to show you how to do life. I am the eternal, self-existent, without beginning, without end, the great I am God who has come to show you to be your life. Jesus Christ doesn't come along and say, let me, Jesus Christ comes along and says, I am God, eternal, come to find you. You don't find me. I come find you. I am. I am. It's utterly, utterly different. And so when people say to me, I don't know if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but I love the teachings of Christianity. Again, please, listen to what the teachings of Christianity says. Jesus Christ didn't come around and talk about, you know, ethical, moral wisdom and, you know, the golden rule. Jesus Christ came and over and over and over again, his words are filled with this selfless understanding. He's constantly talking about who he is and his self-understanding. You need to understand that. No moral, ethical teachings. We put that on Jesus. Most of his words were about, I am. I am. I am. That's why he says stuff like in the New Testament. I've sent all these prophets to you, and yet you killed them. You what? You sent, and who were you? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Heaven. What? When? Where? Who? Who are you? See what she would have said? I am. Hmm. Maybe for some of us, we're sitting there going, that just doesn't resonate with me quite a bit. Okay, well, let me try this. Uh, uh, Nate, can you go ahead and put up a... Anybody know what that is? Say it all together now. That is a galaxy. Does anybody know how big the galaxy is? It's big. (laughs) Yeah, it's big. It's big. Let me tell you how big the galaxy is, okay? Now, I'm not like an astronomy nerd, but I just have to wrap my brain around God, I am. So let me try this way. The galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy is the home of, as you know, our solar system and the sun. By the way, in our galaxy, there are 200 billion stars. 200 billion stars. How big is the galaxy? They say it is 100,000 light years across. You're going, that doesn't mean anything to me. What the heck is 100,000 light years? Let me break it down. Here's what a light year is. Let's begin here. Do you all know light is like really fast? That's why you can't beat it, right? You go in the house, turn on the light, it'll beat you every time to wherever you want to go. It's really, really fast. How fast is it? And some, some fool is going to go home and try, right? Like, okay, so here, light is really, really, really fast. How fast is a light? Let me tell you how fast the light is, okay? One second, 
Turn on the light. In one second, light travels 186,000 miles. That is two-thirds of the way to the moon. In one second, turn on the light. It's two-thirds of the way to the moon. That's fast. But 186,000 miles times 60 seconds or a minute That's 11 million miles. In other words, in one minute, light travels, how far? 11 million miles. Let's keep going. What about in an hour? 11 million miles times one hour or 60 minutes. And in one hour, light travels 660 million miles miles. How far? In a day. How far does light travel in a day? So you multiply 600 million miles times 24 hours and you get 160 billion miles. In one day, light travels 160 billion. I can't even wrap my brain around that. 160 billion miles. Really fast. But if you then do a year, so you multiply 160 billion Billion, not million, billion miles times 365 days, and you get six trillion miles. Somebody say that six trillion miles is how far light travels in one year. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. Let me show you the next picture. That is called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. You know what that is? That is a picture of one of our tiny little galaxy amongst just one part of the universe. Everybody look up here. Hebrews chapter. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, And God holds all things by the power of his word. So let me ask you, If that's who you have invited into your life. Kelly's up here just shaking her head because she's going, Jesus. That's the risk. If that's who we have. 100,000 light years. Our galaxy. Tiny little. Our All Hubble. Deep. Something, something. Okay. God holds. I told you. I'm not an astronaut. God holds that. Holds that by the power of his word. By the power of his word. He simply says, listen, God says, hold together. He holds that in the power of his word. And if that is who we have invited into our lives, how in the world do we treat him like a personal assistant? How do you invite that? The I am into your 100,000 light years. A little galaxy. That. How do you invite that into your life? And you say, I'm going to go to you when I need stuff. When it'll pick me up. When it'll inspiration. 
Maybe for some of us, we begin to wrap our brain around why God says, here's how it works in our relationship. I don't orbit around you. You orbit around me. I don't anchor and center myself around you. You anchor and center yourself around me. I am. I am. Maybe this is why God says, in him, all things hold together, which means when I hear Christians talk about my life is falling apart, I go, who's orbiting around who? Who's orbiting around who? Is that the kind of person you ask into your life to be my friend? Maybe you realize now when God comes into your life, you get the wind knocked out of you. Because how does something like that come into your life? Knock you off our little thrones, you know, our little king, our little, and not feel like the wind is getting knocked out of us. Who have you invited into your life? Somebody's asked me, what, what, how does it make you feel? And somebody says, well, thank you very much for that talk. I'm glad I came today. Because I feel really, really small. <laughs> Thank you for making me feel small. I'm not trying to make you feel small, friend. I am telling you that you're small. <laughs> With a smile and a wink. Can I just press this a little bit? Because, you know, the 20-somethings in our country... The worship of the self. You and I are one of 6.4 billion people in the world. We are one of 6.4 billion people in the world. The world will go on without us. Because we decide to step out of it doesn't mean that history all of a sudden is going to come to a, "Ah! oh my gosh, Susan decided to step out of this. I'm not trying to make you feel small. I am. We're small. We're pretty small. If he is the great I am, here's a principle. And we'll tease it out a little bit. If he is the great I am, that means that I am not. <laughs> Say it with me. I am not. If he is the great I am, that means I am not. I am not what? I am not in charge. I am not in control. I'm not at the center of the universe. I'm not capable of pulling myself up by the bootstraps. I am not God. I am not big. I am not all that. I am not. And I forget that every day. Anybody else? Anybody else? I forget that every day, and I insult God every day. I act like I am, and I act like he is not. I act as if I'm in charge of this seal, and I'm at the center. Let me show you how we do that. When we are prideful, we make ourselves really, really big, and we make God really, really small. When we are addicted, we say, God, you're not enough, and we need satisfaction elsewhere. When we are all about pleasure, we are all about the now, and we make God's glory that much less. When we are all about things, we treat the glory of God, the glory of I am, 
and we settle for trinkets. When we are vengeful, we are saying, God, I'm going to make things right because I don't think you can. And we make him really, really small. When we worry and when we are anxious, we're saying, God, I control the outcome because I don't think that you can. And we make him really, really small. When we're always rushing to help somebody with a savior complex, we elevate ourselves to the rescuer and we forget that God alone does the rescue. When we're striving to be good enough by works, we elevate our effort and downplay his sacrifice. When we are incredibly busy, we say that we are that important and our stuff is more important than God's desire to have an intimate relationship with us. Basically, if you have a really, really big you and a small little God, you're going to have a very small life. But if you have a small, tiny little you and a big, gigantic God, what a life. What a life. But it doesn't. If he is the great I am and I am not, it means glorious death. Let me just tease it out just through three practical applications. It means glorious death. It means glorious death to you and to me. What do I mean by that? It means driving the stake through the heart of me, heart of you, our power, our will, our fame, our name, our will, our desires is driving a stake through the heart of death. It means the death of you and me so that Christ can live his life in and through me. Death of me. So daily, if not hourly, if not moment by moment, if not breath by breath, I am aligning myself with the truth of God that I am not, and yet he is the great I am. And that looks like less and less of us and more and more of him as we die to ourselves and die to our flesh and enable the glory of God to live in and through us. If he is a great I am and I am not, then it means glorious death to me. And in case you're sitting there today going, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for uh, making me feel bad. Th- thank you for, I already, I already knew that I was pretty small. So thank you for kicking me while I'm down. One more, please. And you're sort of fatalistic and you want to walk out of here going, see, that's why I don't go to church. Because when you go to church, you just feel bad. A couple really, really good principles and news of what this means. If he is the great I am. And I am not. It means passionate embrace. What do I mean? I am not. But isn't it cool that I know the great I am? What's more amazing is not only do I know the great I am. he, He knows me. He knows my name. He knows your name. He knows us intimately. The great whole universe, uh, the hundred thousand light year, humble, huge, little field, God, by the power. That God says, I know and love and cherish you. Not some general, you know, you, human being, humanity. He knows and loves you. You. Personally, knows the number of hair on our head. And by the way, if you're going, come on, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) Is that great news? 
No, here's the thing. It means passion and rest. That means if you and I know the great I am, why do we go around and we see, we say, wow, I know the great I am, but you, you're like, wow. And when we do that, we diminish his glory. We eclipse what he means to us by saying that relationship, that thing, that money, that success, that thing is greater than the great I am. And we eclipse and diminish his glory. Why do we do that? Passionate embrace. The great I am comes along and says, not only do you know me, but I know you. And third, it means expectant faith. What do I mean by that? If Jesus is the great I am, then will you please take off the limitations you place on God and the cynicism in our hearts? Come on. He can't change me. All things by the power of my word. He can't change her. Is that really a match for the great I am? There are people in your life, you're going, am I ever going to win them to Christ? They seem so put together and I absolute no need of God. You're going, can't, is that a match for the great I am? What addiction? What habit? What thing could possibly be a match for the one who declares himself? Say it with me. The great I am. Anything? Has anybody grown cynical? You know what cynicism is? Cynicism is saying, God, you are the great I am, but you can't. What are you saying that about today? What are you saying that about today? As you go through this passion week, what are you saying about things in your life saying, I don't care if you are the great I am. In this area, you can't. Is this good news? Expectant faith. I'm sorry, some of you, not even you. You're no match for God. God looks at you and says, I know you don't believe in yourself. I know you don't ever think impossible that you will be able to experience healing, redemption, forgiveness in that. But let me tell you right now, I am. I am. I am. I am. I love that name. I love that name. And I want to say it over and over and over again. I am not, but you are the great I am. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Some of you guys never noticed that, right? We're going to go and look at that look carefully, okay? He says, I am, and I don't think, I don't, I don't think Jesus did anything, okay? And I'll talk about this in a moment. Who are these soldiers? Do you know this? In verses 2 and 3, it says a detachment of Roman soldiers. You know what a detachment is? That's a technical word that described the imperial Roman legion. These are about 200 men. <clears throat> 200 men. They're some of the bravest, most hardened war veterans. These are tough guys. These are the toughest as they come. There's 200 of them. And they've come to arrest Jesus. Carpenter, a rabbi, they come and say, who is, where's Jesus, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Who, wait, wait. I don't think he went, I don't think he did that. You know what I mean? And even if he did that, they're 200 legion Roman soldiers. They've seen it all. That would have been stupid. What does Jesus do? He simply comes and says, I am. 
and 200 of them what the heck is going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. And by now, in light of what we talked about in verses 1 through 5, you may get an idea. It's a very important teaching in the Bible that whenever God shows up, people can't stay on their feet. Have you noticed that? Whenever God shows up, people can't stay on their feet. Ezekiel chapter 1, God appears to Ezekiel. Just a glimpse of his glory. Ezekiel, fall flat on his face. Thank you very much. Second Chronicles chapter 5. The Israelites have dedicated the temple. The glory of God comes down like fire and fills the temple. We're told that the priests couldn't even stand on their feet to minister. Isaiah 6. The train of his robe fall flat on his face. Peter in Luke chapter 5. He says, depart from me. Every time the presence of God, the glory of God shows up, people can't stay on their feet. Why? You know what Jesus is doing? He flexes a little bit before he goes. Before he lays aside his glory. It's veiled. It's veiled. Jesus, listen, this is the amazing thing. Jesus is not even revealing his full glory. It's veiled. He's going to lay aside. But you know, he's Jesus. He doesn't have an ego or anything like that, but he's just going, let me show you. <laughs> and he flexes a little, and they fall flat on their, why? It's not as weird as you might think. Let's break it down a little bit. Do you know what the word glory means in Hebrew? The word glory in Hebrew is kavot. Again, you can't say it right if you're not spitting at your neighbor. Say it with me. Ready? Kavot. Kavot. You know what kavot literally is? It literally meant weight, weight, heavy, significant. When the Bible in the Old Testament talks about the glory of God, it's not talking about pounds and ounces. When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about this. It's talking about the weightiness of God. The significance of God. The, the, the heaviness of God compared to everything else in all creation, which basically has no weight. So here's what the Bible's talking about when it says, the glory. That's why, that's why, you know, when you say glory, you can't just say glory. you got to say the glory of God. Because glory, listen, it's not just one of his attributes. Like God is love, God is holy, God is mercy, God is glorious. Glory describes all of God's attributes in its most excellent, most beautiful, most powerful way. Does that make sense? So when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about the fact that when it comes to every other attribute, God is the most. God is the, 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 the absolute best. God is the abs. I'm running out of words here. He's talking about God, God being in every single one of his attributes, the most glorious, the most heaviest, the most, and I'm just using terrible English English here, but, but you see what I'm saying. So when compared to everything else in our creation, it's as if they are less than nothing. That's what the glory of God is. So we say things like, God, you are the wisest. God, you are the most beautiful. God, you are the most powerful. When it comes to the glory of God, and God's presence coming down. The reason why people can't stay on their feet. If there was a 300,000 ton boulder that came crashing through the sky and landed right here, I wouldn't be able to stay on my feet. Let me break it down for you this way. Again, it's not as weird as you might think. When we come into the presence of superlativeness, it doesn't create warm and fuzzy. It's traumatic. Anybody? 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 Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
human experience. When we come into the soup, when we come into presence of superlativeness, it's not warm up. That's why it's ridiculous to me how we perceive God these days in our culture. We think the presence of God, we think warm, fuzzy. Are you kidding me? People were traumatized when they saw the presence of God. Why? When you find yourself in the presence of superlativeness, even humanly speaking, it's not warm, fuzzy. It's like, whoa. Example. A lot of college students in our church. I have counseling sessions with college students who are literally this close to a nervous breakdown. Why? We get to this story. I find out their entire life, they found their identity in, I'm smart. I'm smart. So they go to a school like Northwestern, where everybody else got A's too, or University of Chicago. Everybody else got A's. So you go to this school, all of a sudden, what happens? What happens? Somebody has to get B's, somebody has to get C's. And these people, their entire identity, I'm smart. I do good in school. My grades are my foundation. What happens to you when you're around smarter people? It's traumatic. It's traumatic. It's their glory. We all do this. Every single one of us. We have something that's our glory. It's our beauty. It's our talent. It's our looks. It's our money. It's something. Every single one of us in this room has something that we're saying. And some of us, it's our morality. It's our religion. That's my glory. But what happens when you have to work with and live with people that are more moral than you, more spiritual than you, better looking than you, more talented than you? It's not warm fuzzy. It's traumatic. It's shattering. But if that is the case in front of human beings, what happens when you get into the presence of God? If we are like that in front of human superlativeness, I find my identity smart, but you know, you're smarter, so I don't feel. What happens when you find yourself in the presence of God? This is why Isaiah 6, a lot of scholars think Isaiah was from a line of priests, the priestly class. And perhaps he found his significant identity in the fact that he was a man of God, a righteous man. Isaiah 6, he walks in and he sees God's holiness. And he says, woe is me. What are you building on? What's your glory? Come on, come on. What's your glory? Every one of us has it in here. What's your glory? What is that glory that you're looking to? What is the glory that you look into? They're saying, God, that, 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 that is the thing. That, that is the thing. Because when we get into the presence of God, all of the things that we use to prop ourselves up become revealed for what they are, a sham. And becoming naked before God. I'm smart. Come on. He holds it. Come, come. I'm beautiful. Rather than warm, fuzzy, it could be downright I'm in the presence of who? Can I ask you something? When's the last time you had that experience in worship with God? I'm serious. When's the last time, alone or in a group of people, you found yourself in the presence of God and God revealing his glory, and your response was, doesn't matter about music, environment. I'm just saying, when you found yourself in the presence of God, in the presence of the ultimate, when's the last time you found yourself saying, whoa. One other thing about standing. What about judgment day? 
What about Judgment Day? What do I mean? I know secular folks out there don't like to think about Judgment Day. But if, I, if, I, if I'm you and I'm not a Christian, I'm a secular person, I want there to be a Judgment Day. I know when we think of Judgment Day, they think hellfire, brimstone, like, ah, oh, that's what I'm talking about. Listen, listen to what I'm talking about. If there is no Judgment Day, what's going to happen to all evil, all injustice, all oppression? If there is no Judgment Day, what happens to that? Do we really want to believe in a God who just says, nah, oh well. Or if there's a God, wouldn't, I, wouldn't that God not have to be just who says, someday everything will be rectified, someday everything will be put to right? True? You know, a non-Christian secular person says, someday things have to be put back right. There has to be justice. But the problem is, if there's justice for the world, that means there's going to be justice for you and me. And again, your secular person says, I don't care about justice. I don't even believe in God, believe in Ten Commandments, obeying God. That, that's just meaningless. I just live by my own rules. Okay, then let's go there. Let's go there. Let me use me as an example. I'm walking around every day. I don't believe in God, Ten Commandments, obeying anything. I'm walking around every day. And every day I'm thinking or saying, you know, that person ought to. That person should. Why are they doing that? I'm casting judgment. And there's somebody invisible who's taking all the notes. Every time I say they should, they ought to. I'm thinking they should, they ought to. So on judgment day, I stand before God. And God says, I'm going to give you the fairest judgment of all. I'm not going to judge you on, did you obey me? Did you obey my commandments? I'm going to judge you on the most fairest of all, that is your own standards for right or wrong. How many of us will be able to stand in front of that God, not Ten Commandments, not God, be judged on our own standards and be able to stand on our feet? So is there hope? Let's look at the Bible. Verse 7. And again, he asked them, who is it you want? Can I just stop here? Can you guys look up here? This is comical to me. So Jesus says, who is it you want? They say, Jesus Nazareth. He says, I am. And they're floored. They get up. (laughs) This is verse 7. And Jesus says, who do you want? What would you do? You'd be looking at each other going, don't answer him. You remember what just happened? Do not shut your mouth. Do. I don't know. I find funny things like that in the Bible. He asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8. I told you that I'm he or I am. Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. It's been told that Peter has bad aim. I'm serious. He's trying to kill this guy. He's not going, I'm just going to cut off that ear. He's aiming for his head. He's aiming for his head. I'm serious. He's aiming for the guy's head. And he gets the year. I'm going, I mean, good God, man. Maybe they didn't have glasses back then or something. You know, but I'm going, I know, I know it's dark, you know, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Just real quick. Just give me, give me like a minute or two here, a minute or two for those of you again. And by the way, you guys, you guys notice, like I'm, I'm intentionally this morning addressing those that are not in Christian. I'm going to do that Friday and Easter as well. If you're not a Christian, because there are a lot of people who go, give me a break. Like that really happened. Whatever. Whatever. 
Like that really happened. These are all a bunch of stupid legends that people wrote. Let me tell you why historians and scholars say it can't be a legend. Number one, look at this text. Look at this context, okay? Who cares about the servant's name? Historians, secular, Christian, say, this is not how legends were written 2,000 years ago. They didn't put those kinds of detailed, who cares? Who's Malchus? We don't care who's Malchus. Details were not written as part of legends. The reason why that's in there is because John has checked this out, writing history. He's writing an eyewitness account of what happened. He's writing it so that people could read it and go, that really happened? Oh, yeah, Malchus, check him out. (laughs) Where is he? He's living in Jerusalem. Really? Yeah. He's like on 10 South, you know, Michael Avenue. Go check him out. So there's the second thing. Second thing, listen. Not only, not only because of legend, but secondly, these gospels were written 30, 40 years after the actual fact, while all the people were still living that an eyewitness accounts to it. These are just facts, historical documents. And if you want to come up and argue with me afterwards going, how do you know that I can give you resources, secular, Christian or not? These were written 30, 40 years. Why would John do that if somebody said, he cut off his ear and then he put it back? Come on. Oh, really? His name was Malchus. Go check it out. 10 South Micah Avenue in Jerusalem. So if you're somebody that says, you know what? I can't. Come on. You guys really believe that Jesus I am. They all fell down and cut off the guy's ear and put it back. Give me a break. If you really say that, if you really say that, you're not looking at the evidence. Because the evidence says historically the way the literature was written and the time in which these gospels were written. It's not congruent. Okay, so going on. Verse 11. So Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup, which is a metaphor of God's justice poured out in Scripture? The Father has given me. In verses 8 and 9, when the soldiers arrive, the disciples are in mortal danger. And stupid, stupid Peter. Stupid, stupid Peter. Why? Because the reason why there are 200 Roman soldiers is because when you go to arrest an insurrectionist, there are probably, what, followers of that insurrectionist, right? So they're getting ready for battle. They're getting ready to duke it out. They're ready. And Peter takes out his sword. Stupid, stupid, stupid. And does the very thing. And Jesus says, ah. What does he say? He says, you're looking for me. Hey, me. You can get me. And then he says, let them go. The word let them go literally in Greek means forgive them. What's going on here? If the disciples are captured by the legion, we may never ever hear them again. Jesus, knowing what they came for, says, let them go. Take me. Let them go. Take me. Let them go. Take me. We ask the question. Forget about Ten Commandments and God. If you and I were judged on the basis of our own, our own standards, none of us in here, even in that standard, would be able to stand. So what possible, what possible hope is there for any one of us to stand on judgment day? The answer, let them go. Let them go. Take me. How can we possibly stand on judgment day when God says, my commandments, take commandments, even your own morality. Can you stand? Answer, yes. Why? The cross. Let them go. 
Take me. Let them go. Take me. They've blown it. I did it right. They've disobeyed. I did it right. Let them go. Take me. One of my favorite movies, Last of the Mohicans. I've shared this before. Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm sorry, I had a massive man crush on him. I'm the only one. I am secure in my masculinity. Thank you very much. I could admit that. He plays the character Hawkeye. Do you remember this scene? How can you miss it? The British officer Duncan, Hawkeye, and Cora. Cora, the beautiful heroine, has been captured by the Indians during French and Indian War. They've been captured, and the Indian chief, Indian chief stands and looks at the three of them, and in French says, Cora must die. Her family, she must die for the sins of her family. Now, here's the interesting thing. Duncan, the British officer, is madly in love with Cora. Cora, not feeling Duncan. Cora is feeling who? Daniel Day-Lewis. She's feeling Hawkeye. She's feeling Hawkeye. But here's what happens. So in that moment, in Daniel Day-Lewis' character, does, Hawkeye doesn't understand French, and so he gets, she gets translated, and Hawkeye looks at the Indian chief and says, Tell, tell the chief, let her go. Let her go and take me. Let her go and take me. Tell him. And British officer Duncan translates in French to the Indian, to the Indian chief. And what does the Indian chief do? He nods his head. But lo and behold, he says to Hawkeye and Cora, you may go. And the British officer Duncan is thrown into the fight. Do you remember that scene? His arms are stretched across like on a cross. And he dies. For who? For a woman who doesn't even return his love. Take me. And let her go. Do you know what we're about to reflect and celebrate this upcoming Friday? Do you realize that I don't care how good moral, some of y'all in here are like, I don't even need to hold my own standards of morality because I've broken every rule there is in the book. Thank you very much. Or some of us in here are going, I'm a good person. I've done decent. I've done right. I've been a good Christian. And so a good Friday and Easter Sunday doesn't quite have the impact of the one who holds the universe in his hands. The truth, the reality is this Friday, we are going to come before God and actually be able to stand. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, on that cross, the Son of God, the one who creates the universe, the one who breathes this whole thing entire into being, the one who is infinite, eternal, this Friday, the one who is infinite, eternal, stood before the judgment and the wrath of God. And he said, let them go and take me. You can't even stand on your feet based on your own goodness and morality. You have no chance, no hope. And yet, on the cross, Jesus Christ says, Take me and let them go. Substitution. He's immune. We're condemned. And on the cross, his humanity is transferred to us. And our condemnation is transferred to him. For every evil, every sin, every injustice, every wrong, 
every day ought to, and we fail to. Jesus goes to the cross, bears the weight of God's judgment, so that on judgment day, you and I will not fall. Secular religion says there's no justice, no judgment day. Who knows what's going to happen to evil and injustice in the world? Traditional religious Pharisees say there is judgment day and you're going to hell. The gospel of Jesus Christ says there is judgment day. And yet the judge himself came and took the judgment for you. So you can go free. If you're sitting there going, that's really good for, you know, like eternal and heaven. Can we just be honest? Doesn't it impact us now? How many of you lose your footing when somebody criticizes you? Somebody comes and criticizes us and we just, oh, it, just, it devastates us and we can't stand on our footing when somebody criticizes us. How do you stand now, confidently, boldly, with joy now, no matter who the criticism comes from? It's saying the verdict has been given by Christ and the verdict is in. I am righteous, holy, accepted before God. So it doesn't matter what earthly court criticizes me and says, you, th-. you could stand bored joyfully and confidently and say, I'm approved, I'm accepted. How can you stand now when somebody wrongs you and you say, I want to take vengeance. I don't want to forgive. If I forgive, then they're going to get away with it. And so we hold bitterness. We get angry. We don't forgive. And we hold on to that. We hold it on to that. We hold on to that. How do we stand with confidence, joy, when we are wronged in this life and in this world? It's believing that the judge was judged on our behalf. And someday, he will make things right. So we could stand today. This week, and I could list hundreds of examples of how you today could stand. Let me end with this. David, you can come on up. As I thought about you guys and as I thought about um, my hours of counseling and prayer and as I thought about what I want to leave you with today. This is what I want to leave you with. Somebody says, I need hope. And who could possibly be smart enough to figure all this out? He says, I am. I need a fresh start. Who's going to give it? Say it with me. He says, My vision, God, is bigger than my resources. So who could possibly make this happen? He says, I am. Who can I trust? I am. I'm not sure who's on my team. God, I am. Nobody's listening to me. I am. I don't have a prayer. I am. My marriage is sinking and I don't know where to turn. I am. I've always hoped for a marriage in the future, but I don't know what's going to come. I am. I can't hold on. I am. I'm pouring into others. Who is pouring into me? I am. 
If we fail, who will get the job done? I am. I'm not sure why I'm here. I am. I've given all I can give, and it's just not enough, God. I am. I'm tired. I am. I quit. I am. I can't. I am. I need a drink. I am. I need a fix. I am. I need someone to love me. I am. I just need somebody to hold me. I am. First and last, ever present, ever existing. We're about to enter into Passion Week, and we do this every year. This Sunday we have communion, but before we have communion, there's an invitation given. And this invitation actually is pretty, pretty wide open. The invitation this morning actually is anybody that feels led just to, just to come up front, just to come up front to kneel, sins to repent, to repent, to, to throw yourself at the mercy of this God to do so to express an utter sense of desperation, to, to, to express how much you need him to do so. Coming up is a physical act and a physical, physical act and a physical act of saying, God, I enter into this holy week, knelt before you, bowed before you, seeking your face, hungry for you, thirsty for you, wanting a real glimpse of you, the real Jesus, the real God, not of my imagination or creation. Just an invitation for anyone to come up and do that today. Anybody? Come on up. Come on up. Let's enter this holy week together. Come on up and we'll pray together. We'll pray together. Let's kneel, brothers and sisters, shall we? I'm serious. If you're sitting there and there's this thing prompting your heart saying, get up there. Come on up. Don't just sit there with your rear end glued to your seats. Who cares what people think? It's about you and God. It's not me. It's not anybody. It's about you and God. You know who you are. And God's saying, it's been a long time, hasn't it? You've cared too much for too long, haven't you? Come on up, come on up, come on up. Fill the aisles, fill the front seat. Please don't do it for me. Don't do it for anybody in this church. Do it for you. Are you desperate for God? Are you hungry for God? For the great I am, 
Do you need to encounter him this week? Do you need him to show up this week? Do you need him to meet you this week? Do you need him to reveal himself to you this week? Do you need an encounter with God that'll shake you to the core this week? Do you want to say to God, God, I am absolutely, utterly desperate for you. God, I'm absolutely dry. God, I need you. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. Please, by all means, come on up. Come on up. Kneel before God. Kneel before God. Kneel before God. Cry out to your God. Cry out to your God. For many of you that are up here, you know why you're up here. You know. You know why the Holy Spirit has prompted you. Anybody else? Is anybody else? I want to wait until everybody that wants to come up has come so we can pray together. Anybody else? sisters the bible says draw near to him and he will draw near to you it's a promise it's a promise it's not an if it's a promise draw near to him and draw near to you some of you are up here because you've been spiritually just dry and stagnant and thirsty for so long so long and you're at the point of saying i want my spiritual life to be different i want to get to a place where I once again know the vibrancy of walking with this Jesus. I want to encourage you as you kneel, cry out to your God, the great I am, who knows you, who hears you, who rescued you and loves you. Some of you are up here because of addictions in your life and you're saying, God, you have crucified that sin on the cross and not only did you die for the penalty of it, but you died to break the power of it, God. And I need you, Holy Spirit, in your life to work in my heart and in my life in such a way that I can walk in freedom and walk in victory. Some of you are up here because you just need a big vision of God. You're scared. You're anxious. You're afraid. You're afraid of the future. You don't know what the future may bring. And God is really, really small in your eyes right now. And you're just saying, God... Will you expand my view of you? Will you expand my sight of you? Will you expand my perspective of you? Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. And I see some of you here just to pray for forgiveness and repentance of your sins, of being judgmental, of being critical placing expectations on others in a way that's unloving ask God for forgiveness as we're praying I'm serious if there's anybody else out there is there's anybody else out there who says I need to pray that I need to be here for that come on up come on up be obey obedient to the spirit of God let's pray for a couple minutes up here let's pray together go to your Savior go to your Lord
together church as a whole those of you that are up here you do this up here those of you that are sitting out there will you do this out there will you go and just lay a hand on the person sitting next to you sit to your right to your left and will you just pray for that brother that sister pray especially for this week that as that brother and sister enters into this week this week this passion week holy week the presence of God and the spirit of God will be ever so present in a powerful tangible way ministering to them and that they would be able to encounter this living God they would encounter this living God wherever they're at this amazing God who comes to rescue us they would encounter him let's pray for each other Father, we thank you that this week we enter into and journey with you. Father, my prayer for myself and for every single person that's here is that by the power of your spirit that you would somehow, for some of us that need it, bring a fresh and new a very familiar story. Then rather than merely reminding us via information, something that we know to be true, that there will be true and genuine encounter that will lead to life transformation. Father, we repent of our cynicism. We repent of our hardness. We repent of our apathy. We repent, Lord God, of just accepting the status quo. Father, we want to encounter you this week in a powerful, life-changing way. You know exactly where we are individually, personally, intimately. So come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body broken for you broken for you regularly and intentionally take it and remember what I did, remember what I've done in the same way he took the cup and he said this cup is the cup of the new covenant It represents my blood shed on the cross. My blood shed on the cross, bearing judgment and sin and death once and for all. So that in me 
and faith in me and faith alone in me, you'll be able to stand. You'll be able to stand. I'm going to ask the communion service to come forward and take their positions. I want to encourage you to not rush coming up, but as the worship team leads us, when you feel ready, please come on up, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and take it. Remembering who our Jesus is and what he did. at the Newcomers Luncheon see some of you hopefully all of you actually all of you Good Friday today is just the beginning it's chapter 2 this Friday please please come and then Easter Sunday in awe God of your sacrifice and awe of your love for us how can a God that big so much about us how can a God that great think that much about us God it is unfathomable to me today but encouraged by that truth I send you I commission you people of God the very embodiment of the kingdom go forth and declare and proclaim via word and deed that Christ the son of God was crucified and on third day he rose again and the world is a different place he loves you he loves you he loves you more than you will ever know but that's why the cross is there to remind you over and over and over again. Go forth, people of God, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Father, the great I am, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, for respect for those who will stay, I'm going to ask the worship team to continue to play and sing love for you to fellowship downstairs. Have a great week.